0: This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. When you think about the shape of ice, uh, ice is formed by its environment and its surroundings as the water freezes. So for example, when you uh, freeze water either in an ice cube tray or in some kind of mold, right? Like uh, my boys, they've got this uh, Death Star ice mold. And so you put the ice, uh, put the water in there and it comes out looking like the Death Star, right? The water, when it freezes, it takes the shape of of a cube in the tray or the shape of a Death Star, And when you leave a water bottle in your car overnight in the middle of winter, um, that water freezes. It it takes the shape of the bottle. It is formed into a cylinder. And side note, uh, because water expands when it freezes, it likely cracked that water bottle. And when it thaws, you have water all over your car the next day. Don't leave your water bottle. But in much the same way, like, we are formed by our environment, aren't we? We are formed by our surroundings, taking on the shape of all that surrounds us. And, and some aspects of that are entirely out of our control. We, we can't control when and where we are born, and yet those things are very formative. I was shaped by being in, born in Iowa, raised on a farm. Uh, 90s grunge was the soundtrack to my life, especially those formative years of junior high and high school and college. And you, can, you can't control who raised you or how you were raised be it in a fluent home, and loving parents, or in poverty and abusive parents. But other aspects are very much within our control, at least to some extent, especially those things you consume. Right? We are formed by what we consume, aren't we? Including those things you fill your mind with, what it is that you're reading and watching and listening to. And those things you fill your time with, what you do, where you go, who you're with. And we are being formed every moment of every day. By all you do, by all you consume, shaping your desires, your loves, and forming your being. Which means the question is not if you are being formed. No, the question is what are you being formed by and who are you being formed to be? As followers of Jesus, our desire is to be formed into the image of Christ, to grow to be more like Jesus, desiring his will, doing his work as his hands and his feet, formed not simply for our own good, but as we've seen throughout this series, formed for the good of one another. But how do we do that? How do we go about this? And that's what I want us to see this morning as we continue making our way through Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, seeing two ways that we are formed for the good of one another, formed by what we fill our minds with and formed by what we fill our time with. And so first, we're going to see that we are formed by what we fill our minds with, by by what we read, by what we watch, by what we listen to. And so look down here with me at what Paul writes in chapter 4, verse 8. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What's interesting about this list is there's, there's nothing uniquely Christian about it in any way. Nothing uniquely Christian about this list of virtues. In fact, if we were able to go back a couple thousand years and we were sitting in in Lydia's living room as Epaphroditus read us this letter, having returned uh, from visiting Paul in prison, we'd probably think this list sounds rather familiar because it sounds much like lists written by many of the great Greek Stoic philosophers. And yet I think this list of virtues within the broader context of the letter of the whole indicates what Paul's doing here in that he's not teaching them what to think, but teaching them how to think. He's not teaching them what to think, he's teaching them how to think. And he's teaching them how to think with discernment, praying, he says in the opening chapter, that they would abound, that they would grow in knowledge and discernment, thinking critically about all that they read, all that they have seen, all that they have heard, so that they may approve what is excellent in their world and in their surrounding culture rather than avoiding it altogether, rejecting cultural philosophies in their entirety, rejecting other theories, rejecting cultural virtues in their entirety when they come from the world rather than the word of God, which so many are prone to do, saying, well, but that's not found in scripture. Electrical engineering is not found in scripture, at least not in any part that I've read. And so should I have avoided then my college education? Should, should I have avoided a 17-year career in Motorola and cellular networking? Like, like was that bad? Because that's not found in Scripture. Motorola is not in there. But, you know, if you think about it, so much uh, of, of medicine and art and technology, it's, it's most definitely excellent, amen, um, but it's not in here. And, and so should we avoid taking penicillin? Should we avoid gazing at a, at a beautiful Monet or Caravaggio painting in a museum? Should we avoid calling our mom on our cell phone? Like, I sure hope not. Um, because Paul's not calling for some sort of separatism here, withdrawing from the world and rejecting all that the world has to offer, but instead teaching us how to discern those aspects of our world that we can learn from and use for the good of one another rather than avoiding, and, and discerning those Elements of our culture that we can retain and adopt and incorporate into our lives rather than leaving behind. Augustine, he, he writes in an excerpt on his, in his book on Christian doctrine entitled, uh, Whatever Has Been Rightly Said by the Heathen, We Must Appropriate to Our Own Uses. Side note, I love a good subtitle where like, you don't even need to read the rest of the article. Like, nope, that was good. I get it. I'm going to read it anyway because it's really good. Uh, Augustine writes, Pagan learning is not entirely made up of false teachings and superstitions, which every one of us, when going out under the leadership of Christ from the fellowship of the heathen ought to abhor and avoid, the Christian, therefore, can separate these truths from their unfortunate associations, take them away, and put them into proper use for proclaiming the gospel. Meaning we could take something that may very well have had pagan roots, be it a a date on the calendar, the winter solstice, uh, be it an adornment in our home like a, like a wreath or a, a wedding custom like the, the, the tying of the minna. We can take those things and we can appropriately appropriate it and adopt it for our own use, giving it new meaning. He's not calling for a form of separatism, but he's also not calling for some form of fundamentalism here either where everyone must look the same, think the same, sound the same, act the same, doing the same thing the same way. He's not calling for this one size fits all binary black and white way of living that transcends all time and all culture because I think we've all come to see life's not that simple, is it? No, instead, what we, I think, have come to see is that the Christian life is lived in the infinite shades of gray of our ever changing cultural context that we live within. I think we've come to see there's not always one right answer, and when there is, and there most certainly are times when there is there's not always one right way to arrive at that answer or to apply the answer. Which is why I think what we see him doing is drawing boundaries for us to walk within rather than a thin line that we're meant to tightrope. Thinking about whatever is true rather than giving a limited list of what he himself personally views as true. But he's not only teaching us how to think with discernment about the, the quality of info that exists and if it's appropriate. He's, he's also helping us discern the sheer quantity of information that exists and, and is it helpful. Right, there are more books and articles than you could ever hope to read. I, I have a stack that I call, uh, I used to call it the stack of shame. It was a stack of books that sat on my floor. I wasn't willing to put it on my bookshelf. Uh, there were books that had been given to me that I purchased, that whatever. And I was like, I'm never going to read those ever. And so, yeah, they're in boxes now. Uh, I was done looking at my boxes, my stacks of shame. But there's more than we'll ever hope to read. There's more films and documentaries than you ever hope to watch. That first couple months of the pandemic, some people joke, oh, I watched Netflix. What did you watch? Oh, no, I watched all of Netflix. There's nothing left. Have you tried Hulu? There's always more left. There's more lectures and podcasts than you'd ever hope to listen to. Hey, have you you listened to this podcast? No, because i got 400 others that I'm trying to catch up on. And so we need to learn how to curate what we consume. We need to curate what we consume and use this finite time that we've been given to the best of our abilities. But not only that, we have what psychologists refer to as a negativity bias. Negativity has a tractor beam. It is the Death Star that is sucking us and the Millennium Falcon right into it. Right? We are drawn to negativity, aren't we? It's that darkness, it sucks us in. That's why I like, what do we call it when you're just scrolling in the middle of the night? Doom scrolling. We're drawn to the darkness even in the darkness. Meaning we need a new set of criteria to help us sort through what it is that we should fill our mind with. And not necessarily separating good from bad, but, but even identifying what is best and most helpful to think about in being formed, not only for our own good, but for the good of one another. And so look at this list that Paul gives, the, what he says we should think about. First, he says we should think about whatever is true, or whatever is real and reliable, what is accurate and helpful. And that's becoming increasingly more difficult given the sheer amount of information that exists, isn't it? The, the amount of content being produced, much of which is spreading gossip, is speculating on truth, or telling half truth, some even hiding the truth, hiding the truth to create a more comfortable version of the truth that we're okay with. 24-7 cable news has made speculating on truth far more profitable than simply reporting the truth. Social media has given anyone with a phone or a computer the ability to portray anything they want as being true. Tabloids have turned gossip into a commodity to be sold, meaning we need to be more discerning with the sources of info that we turn to and trust in for vetted and viable information, knowing that um, just because you read something someone shared on social media or saw a video someone posted on YouTube doesn't make it true, does it? He didn't say that. Now hear me, I'm not saying we need to treat everything like a college term paper where we need to cite all of our sources. And yet I kind of am a little bit because we definitely need to be more discerning as to what it is we are consuming and filling our minds with, asking if it's true, if the source is reliable. But not only that, we should think about and fill our minds with, he says, whatever is honorable, whatever is worthy of respect, listening to those who treat others with dignity and respect as well. Thinking about whatever is just, what is fair and and reputable, exposing injustice and corruption and oppression rather than seeking to cover it up. Whatever is pure, authentic, and real, not fake and fraudulent. Whatever is lovely, meaning like whatever is beautiful and and pleasing and life-giving. Reading a beautiful novel, uh, looking at, at a beautiful painting, listening to beautiful music while knowing beauty is in the eye and the ear of the beholder. And there is no singular criteria for what is considered lovely. For example, uh, 90s grunge music is lovely to me. <laughs> I find those riffs absolutely beautiful. The dirtier the better. That guitar. Oh! You might not find it so lovely. My mom never once found it lovely or beautiful. Some of you, um, some of you think Taylor Swift music is lovely, Amen? Yes, I do too. Some of you don't, she does, I do. You do too? Some of you find the Hamilton soundtrack beautiful and for the longest time I thought y'all were crazy. Then I listened to it and watched it. You were right, I was wrong. Some of you still aren't on the train yet though. So good. And also we should think about what is commendable, what is admirable and appealing that that draws you in to seek the good of one another. But also, like this isn't so much an exhaustive list of six separate virtues that we should go through line by line, but a representative list of things that are are good and life-giving, that that promote the well-being and flourishing of not just yourself, but of all of God's creation. Going so far as to say, you know what, here, do this. Fill your mind and think about anything that is, Excellent. Anything that is worthy of praise. Eugene Peterson writing in the message, think of of the best, not the worst. Think of things to praise, not things to curse. Which makes sense, right? Think think about your body, for example, your physical body. And And if what is best for our body is to eat nutritious foods, right, to get... Exercise and and plenty of rest. Things that promote the health and well-being of our body. Shouldn't we do the same for our minds? Shouldn't it receive the same kind of care as our body? Filling it with things that are excellent and worthy of praise? Things that stretch our mind and make us think? Giving our mind time to rest, sitting in silence, rather than constantly consuming and constantly doom-scrolling? And so imagine for a moment if we simply stopped filling our minds with things that make us anxious and angry. Did you know we have that ability? Things that just make your blood boil when you see it, that make you want to scream. And so, so listen, if, if social media is making you feel increasingly anxious, thinking you are not good enough, that you have not done enough, man, delete it. Right now, take out your phone, delete that stuff. Don't fill your mind with it. And if Twitter and cable news are making you feel increasingly angry, viewing the other as an outsider, treating your neighbor as an enemy, man, turn that stuff off. Don't fill your mind with it. Because those things are forming you, they're forming you one way or the other. We are always being formed. But there's another layer to this that I don't want us to miss. He's not just teaching us how to think with discernment in general, but a very specific way to discern. And I think what he's doing is he's connecting this back to chapter 2. I think most all of this letter connects back to chapter 2 and, and to the Christ hymn. And remember, he, he begins the Christ hymn saying, to have this mind among yourself, this way of thinking, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Thinking with the mind of Christ. Viewing these virtues in relation to Christ. Let's go back through this list. Because that means... Not just thinking about things that are true in general, right? One plus two equals? One of you thinks he's funny. One plus two equals three. That's okay. It was your math teacher when you grew up. It was just, is, that like, is that like second grade math, first grade math? I don't know. Don't just think about things that are true in general, but true in relation to Jesus, who declared himself to be the way the truth and the life, knowing that his his words are true, that all he has promised will come to be, that he will, in fact, return, that he will right all that is wrong, restore all that is broken. His words are true, and his way is true. It leads to where he has promised, leading us to God the Father. And that means filling our minds and thinking about what is true, thinking about what is true, about who God is and all God has done and all God has promised to do filling our minds with things that are true about who Jesus is, the eternal word of God who was in the beginning with God as God and then about why he came taking on flesh and dwelling among us in his first advent to rescue and to redeem us by dying for us and of what it means to faithfully follow his way in obedience to his words. But it also means thinking about what is true about you, And who you are, your identity, not who the world says you are, but who God says you are, knowing that you are his beloved chosen child. What is true about your sense of belonging and the righteousness that we gain by being found in Christ, knowing that you are loved and accepted? And what is true about your sense of purpose of loving God and loving others, Jesus says, Helping people know Jesus by pointing them to Jesus. Continuing in and caring for creation. Knowing the spirit of God is at work within you. Filling our mind with that truth that we need to be reminded of over and over again. But not only that, we should think about and fill our minds with whatever is honorable. Knowing that nothing can be honorable that dishonors God. Amen? Nothing can be honorable that dishonors God. Those created in his image, which includes all of humanity. Thinking about things that are just, knowing that what God requires of us as his people is to do justice and love kindness as we walk humbly with God who is himself just and who will execute his judgment upon Christ's return, his second advent. Thinking about things that are pure, knowing that we have been called to be holy and set apart and distinct, known by the world by our love. Because we worship a God who is holy and set apart and distinct and who is Himself love. Filling our minds and thinking about whatever is lovely, seeing the beauty that exists in all of God's creation, even in spite of the presence of sin, and thinking about those things that are commendable, that are admirable, those things that resemble the character of Jesus. Knowing that by filling our minds with the things of Jesus, truth and honor and justice and holiness and love and generosity, And by thinking of those things that are are excellent, drawing our attention to Jesus and worthy of praise, drawing our affection to Jesus, the more we will be formed into the image of Christ, the more we will grow to be like Jesus, the more that we will love like Jesus. But we're not only formed by what we fill our minds with, he also goes on to show that we're formed by what we fill our time with, by what we do, where we go, and who we're with. He says in verse 9, he says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. He's connecting here to what he wrote in the previous chapter about the the importance of having examples to look up to and and follow after in our pursuit of Jesus. Paul himself being an example for them, having spent time with them some five to ten years ago when he began the church in Philippi there with Lydia in her home. And they learned from him receiving his teachings on the word and the way of Jesus. They heard the way he spoke about God and two others. They saw the way that he lived, the way that he loved. And now they were to take all of this and they were to do something with it. They, they were to put it into, into practice and living it out. Because what good, is, what good is it to you, what good is it to anyone to learn something but not be changed by what you have learned? To learn something and not live out what you have learned. And it starts to resemble how Paul began his famous love chapter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, where he says in in verse two, he says, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. If you have all of the theological knowledge you know all there is to know about God, having read every book ever written about God, having heard every sermon ever preached about God, if you have every word of scripture memorized even in its original languages so as to have seminary degrees hanging on your wall, but you have not put what you have learned into practice submitting your life to the authority of God's word and the leading of his spirit, then what good was any of it? What good was it for you? What good was it for anyone we need to put this into practice we need to live it out see here's the thing in, in order to grow in something uh, in order to uh, get better and more comfortable with something um, be it a, a musician right playing an instrument or an artist in in drawing and painting uh, an athlete shooting free throws uh, in school, right, your, your spelling list or your multiplication tables, learning a new language or, or whatever your vocation might be, whether it is uh, writing code or teaching a class or helping a client, whether it's uh, preaching a sermon or, or following Jesus, right, it takes time, doesn't it? More time than we want to admit. It takes repetition, doing things over and over and over again. It takes practice. Yes, Alan Iverson, I'm talking about Practice. Malcolm Gladwell, he writes in his book, Outliers, that that practice isn't the thing you do once you've become good. Practice is the thing you do that makes you good, makes you proficient at something. And he writes about how it takes, uh, his theory is it takes 10,000 hours of practicing something to become proficient at something. 10,000 hours doing it over and over and over again and again and again. And so I read that, and I think, well, you know what? Some have said it takes about 200 sermons for a preacher to become proficient and to find their voice. And then uh, Tim Keller came along, he's like, yeah, no. It's more like 400. Well, oh, thanks, Tim. But I, I, you, you know I did the math, and you know I had a spreadsheet. Um, if you look at about the average hour spent preparing and preaching a sermon, 400 of them, guess how many hours it is? It's about 10,000 hours. Go, Tim. Today, by the way, is number 334, so in case you're wondering, yes, I have plenty of room to grow, at which point Jason gives an amen. (laughs) Beat you to that one. Think about the disciples, though. Those 12 guys. They they spent nearly every waking moment of every day with Jesus for three straight years. Over 15,000 waking hours. And yet at the end, one of them betrayed him. One of them denied even knowing him and two fought to see who would sit next to him. Point being, this is a lifelong journey spent in pursuit of Jesus that needs far more than 10,000 hours. We are gonna fall and we are going to fail along the way time and time again. And guess what? That's how we learn and that's how we grow. We learn when we fall, we learn when we fail, we are formed by every step we take, aren't we? Tish Harrison Warren, she writes in her book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, a book that we read as part of the way, she writes, our hearts and our loves are shaped by what we do again and again and again. Your love for your favorite author is shaped by reading them over and over and over again and again and again. Your love for your favorite sports team is shaped by watching them again and again and again. Your love for your favorite musician is shaped and formed by listening to them again and again and again. And your love for your favorite person is spent is shaped by spending time with them again and again and again. And that includes your love of God. And this is where things like the spiritual practices come in, why they're so helpful in our spiritual formation. Things like prayer and corporate worship, uh, examine and Sabbath, uh, lectio divina, silence, solitude, fasting, the daily office, many of which we talked about at the beginning of the year in our series, The Spiritual Rhythms of the Psalms. Because the spiritual practices, if you remember our definition, they deepen our awareness of God and deepen our affection for God. Our love for God shaped by spending time with him again and again and again. Shaping our desires, our love of him, forming our inner being, guiding us in our pursuit of Jesus. Desiring his will and doing his work as his fans and his feet for the good of one another. Not by our occasional participation, but by our regular participation. Again and again and again. And, and so think about just some real practical things. If you want to um, become more connected to others, do you do that by staying away? Or do you do that by meeting someone new to you again and again and again? Going to that new small group when it was awkward the first couple times, but going again and again and again until a couple of years later, you can't imagine life apart from those people. Or, or take prayer. If you want to grow in prayer, guess what you need to do? You need to pray. Fill your time with prayer. Learning about prayer. And and one way you can do that is uh, I want to recommend David Benner's book, Opening to God, an incredible book on prayer and and the reading of Scripture. Uh, There's a few extra copies back in the living room if you'd want to pick one up. Learn about prayer, but not just that. Practice prayer. Practice prayer at home and practice prayer with others. Practice prayer in in your small group and and, and practice prayer by, by coming and joining us at 930 as we begin each and every Sunday morning in prayer together. But ultimately, if you want to go closer to Jesus, fill your time and spend more time with Jesus, learning his words. My favorite place to recommend to start, start with the Gospel of John, as Jesus tells you exactly who he is, and read it again and again and again, and I'm gonna put a fourth again. Learning his words, living out his way together with others, be it your small group or joining the way be it in the the men's uh, breakfast that we had yesterday morning or a women's Bible study, but doing this with others, worshiping him together with us each and every Sunday, or serving as, as his hands and his feet. And you have that opportunity to do that this Saturday at the pantry, or by joining one of our Sunday morning missional teams, knowing that by taking what you have learned and received here, what you have heard and seen in others here, And putting that into practice, Paul says the God of peace, he will be with you. He's not saying that by doing these things, if you do these things, then he will be with you. We don't do these things so that he will be with you. No, he is already with us. Jesus promised he will be with us always until the end of the age. God promised he will never leave us or forsake us. No, what this does is this gives us greater awareness of God's presence in our lives. Growing our awareness and our affection For God, His Spirit guiding you, His Word forming you, His people caring for you, and His presence bringing peace to you. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.